One of the great pleasures of reviewing each and every episode of The Twilight Zone is not just enjoying the great writing of Rod Sailing, Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, among others, but also enjoying those great Twilight Zone performances. Who can forget Jack Klugman in A Game of Pool, or Burgess Meredith in Time Enough at Last, or William Shatner's performance in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet? Or how about Fritz Weaver performing The Mighty Casey? Or Cliff Robertson in Walking Distance? Okay, I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, Fritz Weaver was in Third from the Sun and The Obsolete Man. Cliff Robertson was in A Hundred Yards Over the Rim and The Dummy. Well, you are quite right, but that doesn't mean that I'm wrong. You see, those performances that I speak of do exist, but in a long-forgotten corner of the Twilight Zone. But how do you get there? Well, that's actually quite easy to enter this forgotten twilight zone all you need to do is just press play you are traveling through another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Next up, The Twilight Zone. The origin of The Forgotten Twilight Zone stretches back as far as the television show itself. We know that the pilot, Where Is Everybody, was first broadcast on the 2nd of October 1959. But shortly after that, a book called From the Twilight Zone was released. Now, the exact date when this was released is a little confusing, to say the least. I have this book in front of me right now, and it is itself a bit of a conundrum. It says printed in the USA in 1958, but the copyright notice says it's copyright of Rod Serling in 1960-61. And 62. Then the writing on the inside jacket says, On the night of September 29th, 1961, a dark, intense young man stepped before a television camera to introduce a new television series he had created. His name, Rod Serling. September 29th, 1961 was the first air date of the season 3 episode, The Shelter. So things aren't quite adding up in this book, because The Twilight Zone made its debut in 1959, so that's quite a difference. From The Twilight Zone was published by Nelson Doubleday Incorporated, but also in the early 60s, the same stories from that book, plus a few more, were published in three paperbacks from Bantam Books, and they were called Stories from The Twilight Zone, More Stories from The Twilight Zone, and new stories from the Twilight Zone. Now the Nelson Doubleday book from the Twilight Zone does say on it it's a book club edition 
so perhaps it was some kind of special volume just using the From the Twilight Zone motif that collected some of the stories from the paperbacks together. The three paperbacks themselves, Stories from the Twilight Zone, More Stories and New Stories, have been reprinted several times over the years, and most recently by the Rod Sailing Books imprint with new introductions by Anne Sailing. So while the chronology might be slightly confusing, irrespective of what came first, what it comes down to is this. These books were prose stories by Rod Serling based on Twilight Zone episodes or Twilight Zone scripts. They weren't scripts themselves, they were actual stories. And as we've encountered before on the Twilight Zone podcast, Serling would often tweak little details here and there and the written versions were sometimes a little different from the television versions. So what does all this have to do with that unfamiliar version of the Twilight Zone theme and that unfamiliar voice that we just heard introducing the show? Well, those stories were first published in the 1960s and at that time, although audiobooks existed on vinyl records, they hadn't quite become the popular thing that they would years later because it's nice to sit back and play a record and listen to a story, but for an audiobook to be truly useful, it needs to be portable, so you can listen to it while you're driving, mowing the lawn, laying by the pool, whatever it might be. So, in short, it needs to be, at the very least, on cassette tape. So jump forward 30 years, and in 1992 and 1993, the publisher Harper Collins took six stories from the three books, stories, more stories and new stories from the Twilight Zone and they did just that, they put them onto audio tape. Now the sleeve notes for these tapes say produced and directed by Rick Harris, recorded and mixed by Richard Romanello, music by Marius Constant performed by Mark Landau and John Bear Compass. So I couldn't think of anyone better to give us some insight into these recordings than the man who produced and directed them, Rick Harris. Could you tell us about your professional life up until that point and the kind of work you were doing? Well, uh, these uh, took place over about, uh, oh, I'd say about a year and uh, roughly a year, actually, um, between 1992 and 1993. And at right. that point, I was executive producer at Harper Audio. Uh-huh. And there at Harper Audio, it was my job to uh, produce, cast, and direct uh, the audios that Harper Collins was putting out uh, in, out of its New York office. Yeah. And um, my personal background, uh, I had uh, been a, a graduate student and received uh, my uh, PhD from Columbia University in English, literature, mm-hmm. and drama as the particular field. And uh, while uh, teaching uh, part-time, I started to work at a local New York radio station, WBAI-FM, and there at WBAI, having done a lot of academic work about theater, I was in a position to actually do radio drama and uh-huh. 
to interview uh, actors and directors and to get a lot of hands-on experience working with actors in a recording environment. And having done that for a couple of years, uh, when the audiobook industry uh, kind of took off uh, towards the uh, uh, end of the 80s, uh, mm. 1980s, um, uh, I had I was well positioned to be somebody who could uh, contribute something in that area. Uh, my expertise being literature, language, and drama, mm-hmm. uh, working with actors, uh, interpreting texts and reading texts was something that I was very comfortable and happy to do. So, yeah. casting local, knowing the year I had been a theater reviewer for the radio station as well was having an academic background. So between the theater understanding and knowing what actors were around and who people were and what was going on, I was in a nice position to transition into the audiobook industry when HarperCollins uh, was looking for somebody to direct the operation of uh, their studio around 1990. Uh-huh. So the uh, audiobook of the uh, Twilight Zone uh, uh, materials uh, came a couple of years after that, as I say, in uh, spring of 1992, and then the spring of 1993, they happened in sort of two different uh, periods, and uh, opened over the course of one year. Uh And uh, my job was to run the studio, find the actors, uh, work with the engineers and the editors, and uh, get a good quality audio product out of uh, the recording situations that we were in. So that that was my personal background, Mm -hmm. and I was very pleased to be uh, doing what I was doing. Rick was very clearly an experienced audio producer and HarperCollins, an established and respected publisher. The words for the stories themselves were by Rod Sailing, so there's a solid team here, but why the Twilight Zone? Why now? If we put ourselves back in the early 90s, the original show was now 30 years old. Twilight Zone the movie had come and gone. The 80s revival had sputtered to an end in 1989 with a season that, although made with the best of intentions by the people working on it, was only really made to make up the numbers so the show could be sold into syndication. The 80s also saw the end of Twilight Zone magazine, so the 90s was quite a barren time for Twilight Zone fans. At this time, you know, it was the early 90s, not much was happening with the Twilight Zone at this point, so how did this particular product come about? Well, my recollection at this point is that uh, the materials that we were using were uh, part of a collection, a book, Mm -hmm. published by Harper. Uh, I'm going to be vamping here and trying to remember, but I would think it would be tales from the Twilight Zone or stories from the Twilight Zone or Uh some variation of that, because what these were were essentially short stories based on filmed scripts. Yeah. So this was not a script of a uh, television episode. It was based on a television episode. That each individual piece was based on a television episode mm-hmm. uh, and placed in a narrative format. 
Yeah. So that, of course, there was dialogue back and forth. But if you, you were to just look at it uh, on the printed page, you would say this is a short story. Yeah. And so, in effect, these are six short stories uh, based on uh, Twilight Zone episodes uh, penned by, in most cases, I would say all cases, is uh, Rod Serling. One of the reasons why the audiobook business sort of grabbed or became part of the publishing business hmm. was that uh, the publication uh, of a book in print, obviously, this is well before ebooks, yeah, uh, was uh, frequently, although not invariably, accompanied by an audio version of it. Uh-huh. And if let us say Harper published this, let's say this is, we're talking say 1992. Uh-huh. Uh, if Harper published something in the neighborhood, let us say of 500 books that year mm. um, of everything from cookbooks to children's books to uh, how to construct the gazebo, uh, it, it would be uh, the audio division's job to pick from those many properties, the ones that would make the most sense as an audio. Right. And in this case, I should mention also that the audio would have been on cassette. Yeah. This being 1992, I don't, I know that we had not yet uh, transferred, you know, transferred over to uh, CDs. Uh, Having been, you know, the the audio book business, uh, in a sense, first came out around 1951, 52 uh, or so when, uh, you know, Cadman. Uh, and Spoken Arts and other smaller companies, small companies, uh, put out uh, books on record and, mm. or short stories or, or, or abridgments that were out on LP. So the medium transla- you know, transferred from the first LP, and I guess you could even go back further and see them on seven and some versions from very early stages yes. on 78s, but we'll skip that and go from <laughs> LP to cassette and then from cassette to uh, CDs, yeah. and now from CDs to uh, downloadables and CDs as well, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a uh, medium that has its, its own technical history. Yeah. But uh, the audio division, uh, looking at, let us say, 500 books that HarperCollins, using that as an arbitrary number, is publishing, would uh, their editor, the editorial committee would say, okay, well, you, they, they make decisions like, well, this is a very natural audio book. That's one reason you would do it. This mm-hmm. will make a really good audio. The other reason would be, oh, this is going to be a very big seller. Yeah. It is, it is really rarely the case that the audio has a, uh, how should I say, an economic life that is truly independent of the book. Right. If the book is a big seller, the audio will be a big seller. Mm-hmm. If the book is a turkey and uh, nobody buys it, then the audio is likely to suffer the same fate. So the audio uh, editorial committee uh, looked clearly at uh, what Harper was publishing and saw that this volume of Twilight Zone stories was going to be published yeah. and said, well, um, would make a very good audio and is a reasonable prospect to do well. So for both of those reasons, let's do it. If you look on the inside cover of the Harper Audio Twilight Zone tapes, it says that the source is stories from the Twilight Zone from Bantam Books. 
1960, 61 and 62 copyright for the stories was to Rod Serling himself. Then in 1989, it was renewed by Carol Serling, Anne Serling and Jodie Serling. Now, I can't actually find a print version of Stories from the Twilight Zone or the other two titles from HarperCollins at that time, but that's not to say it doesn't exist. But irrespective of how it came to be licensed to Harper, the pieces are all in place now, except for one detail. Who was going to read Rod Serling's stories? My job was essentially to, uh, at this point, frankly, I don't remember whether I had any role in selecting which of the stories uh, we could do, uh, mm. but I do know I had a lot to do with selecting who would do the reading. But in any event, we were going to put out, again, as I say, on cassette, uh, these uh, stories. Yeah. Uh, as I look at my, 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 my uh, records, the first four were all recorded between um, uh, April uh, 92 and June of 92. Okay. Uh, those, those four being uh, The Mighty Casey with uh, Fritz Weaver, Walking Distance with uh, Cliff uh, Robertson, Midnight Sun with uh, Lois Nettleton, Odyssey of Flight 33 with Roddy McDowell. Uh-huh. Now the, and then we'll talk later about the other two, but but those first four, the first two were done in New York, uh, Mighty Casey and uh, Walking Distance, uh, again with Fritz Weaver doing Mighty Casey and uh, Walking Distance uh, done by Cliff Robertson. Um, I guess it's those I should say the now late Fritz Weaver, uh-huh. um, and uh, we did those in New York in uh, May. First one was in uh, May. Uh, the next. One again was in June with Cliff Robertson doing walking distance. And then I was in Los Angeles and on, on, on another project or other projects and recorded uh, both uh, Lois Nettleton doing Midnight Sun and the Odyssey of Flight 33 in June in Los Angeles um, of uh, 92. Okay. So that's the history of the first four. So let's just take a moment to ponder what Rick said there. Take one, The Mighty Casey, was read by Fritz Weaver. Tape two, Walking Distance, read by Cliff Robertson. Tape three, The Odyssey of Flight 33, read by Roddy McDowell. And tape four, The Midnight Sun, read by Lois Nettleton. Four stories written by Rod Sailing, read by Twilight Zone stars. I'm going to detour slightly from our chat with Rick to take a look at the first three audiobooks. Now, I am going to play some clips, but I do want to stress I don't own the rights to these stories or recordings. They remain the property of their copyright holders, Harper Audio for the recordings themselves and the Sailing Estate for the stories. Whenever I use clips from the Twilight Zone on the show, as I am doing with these audio clips, I'm using them in line with fair usage copyright law and no infringement is intended. So let's press play on that first audiobook. Harper Audio presents The Mighty Casey by Rod Serling, performed by Fritz Weaver. The season one episode, The Mighty Casey, I like to think is one of Twilight Zone's better comedy efforts. Jack Warden as Mouth McGarry 
has a real comic touch and great timing in this story of Casey, the robotic pitcher who improves the fortunes, temporarily at least, of the Hoboken Zephyrs. In the literary version, there's no mention of the Hoboken Zephyrs, this time it's actually a baseball team that did exist at one point before they moved to a different city. There is a large, extremely decrepit stadium overgrown by weeds and high grass that is called, whenever it is referred to, which is seldom nowadays, Tebbets Field. And it lies in a borough of New York known as Brooklyn. Many years ago, it was a baseball stadium housing a ball club known as the Brooklyn Dodgers, a major league baseball team then a part of the National League. Tebbets Field today, as we've already mentioned, houses nothing but memories, a few ghosts, and tier after tier of decaying wooden seats and cracked concrete floors. In its vast, gaunt emptiness, nothing stirs except the high grass of what was once an infield and an outfield, in addition to a wind that whistles through the screen behind home plate and howls up to the rafters of the overhang of the grandstand. One of the things that you often find in these prose stories is that, freed from the shackles of television budgets and limitations of effects, Rod Serling will allow his imagination to run free, and the depiction of Casey himself is one of those moments where he can do just that. In the episode, Robert Sorrells, who played Casey, is a tall, thin, quite gormless-looking guy, but in this version, he's a bit more impressive. Mouth turned to look expectantly over the little old man's shoulders. Casey was coming out of the dugout. From cleats to the button on top of his makeshift baseball cap, there was a frame roughly six feet six inches high. The hands at his sides were the dimensions of two good-sized cantaloupes. His shoulders, McGarry thought to himself, made Primo Canero look like the before in a Charles Atlas ad. In short, Casey was long. He was also broad. And in addition, he was one of the most powerful men either McGarry or Beasley had ever seen. He carried himself with a kind of agile grace that bespeaks an athlete. And the only jarring note in the whole picture was a face that should have been handsome but wasn't, simply because it had no spark, no emotion, no expression of any sort at all. It was just a face. Fritz Weaver appeared in two episodes of the original Twilight Zone, Third from the Sun and The Obsolete Man, and he gave two very different performances in those, and he gives a very different performance in this too. I don't think The Mighty Casey itself will top many people's Twilight Zone lists. I do enjoy it, but I actually think I enjoy this audio version a little bit more than the TV version. It's really quite a joyful experience hearing Fritz Weaver reading this one and having fun with the story and the characterizations. He has that rich, deep voice, almost like an American Christopher Lee. But when it comes down to the voice characterizations, he really commits to the comedy and raises the material quite a bit. Listen, Mr. McGarry, he said proudly. He pointed a thumb at his chest and Mouth put his ear there. He could hear the steady tick, 
Mouth stepped back and shouted excitedly, You got a heart! There was a chorus of delighted exclamation and comment from all the players, and Beasley, poised for a faint, decided against it. And look at that smile, Stillman said over the shouting. That's the one thing I couldn't get him to do before. Smile! Casey threw his arm around the old man. It's wonderful. It's, it's just wonderful. Now I feel... I feel like togetherness. The team roared their approval, and Bertram Beasley mounted a rubbing table, cupping his hands like a megaphone, and shouted, All right, Dodgers, out on the field. Let's go, team. Casey starts tonight. The new Casey. So one tape in, and I'm starting to get pretty excited about this audio series and what I'm yet to discover. I've often said that sometimes it's easier to enjoy later versions of the Twilight Zone in other media, because then it's easier not to miss Rod Serling's presence so much. But I also think that removing this story, The Mighty Casey, from the TV show and presenting it in a different way also makes it that bit better too. I recently asked some friends of the show whether they subscribe to the opinion that the Twilight Zone couldn't really do comedy and the general response was that it's not that the Twilight Zone can't do comedy it's more that comedy isn't what you watch the Twilight Zone for and I can definitely see how that could be the case. In this case though we have this story 30 years removed from the original being brought to us by a beloved Twilight Zone actor but not only that he brings this wonderful warm playful performance to it so it would be hard not to have goodwill towards this one and I do I think it's a great start to this audio series not all of these releases have closing sailing like narrations but at the close of the mighty Casey it does have an altered version of the actual closing narration from the television episode so there is some sort of overlap there so let's compare the television closing narration to the audio narration. Once upon a time, there was a Major League Baseball team called the Hoboken Zephyrs, who during the last year of their existence wound up in last place and shortly thereafter wound up in oblivion. There's a rumor, unsubstantiated of course, that a manager named McGarry took them to the West Coast and wound up with several pennants and a couple of world's championships. This team had a pitching staff that made history. Of course, none of them smiled very much but it happens to be a fact that they pitched like nothing human. And if you're interested as to where these gentlemen came from, you might check under B for Baseball in the Twilight Zone. Once upon a time, there was a major league team called the Brooklyn Dodgers, who during the last year of their existence as a ball team, wound up in last place, and shortly thereafter wound up in oblivion. They are rarely, if ever, mentioned in these parts again. Rumor has it that a ball club on the West Coast is the residue of what was left of the original ball club. And on occasion, in a dark bar off Flatbush Avenue, someone might whisper the name of a certain pitcher with an exceptional left hand. Somebody else will softly murmur the question, whatever happened to the mighty Casey? 
No, you won't find any of the answers in the records, though they are available, should anyone be interested, by checking under B for baseball in The Twilight Zone. The Harper Audio Series is starting on a light note, and it makes a very good job of it. But how's it going to fare with one of The Twilight Zone's most celebrated episodes? Harper Audio presents Walking Distance by Rod Serling. Performed by Cliff Robertson. I said a moment ago when we were talking about the mighty Casey that in the written versions of these stories, Rod Serling could go to places that budget and effects wouldn't allow in the television versions. But as this version of Walking Distance shows, that's not the only way that he expands on things. In the TV show, we meet Martin Sloan as he approaches his old hometown of Homewood. He's a successful man approaching middle age who is starting to realize that the life he's made for himself in the material world of business is an empty existence when he compares it to the summers of his youth. In the written version though, we meet him before he even gets in his car to make that trip and we get to spend some time understanding where he is in life and how this is affecting him. So prose gives sailing the opportunity to add backstory, character and all that good stuff that writers love. To be fair to the TV version, I think when Martin Sloan rolls into town, we get what his state of mind is thanks to Sailing's script, Gig Young's performance and Robert Stevens' direction. So I'm not saying one version is better than the other. They both exist quite comfortably together and both are welcome. His name was Martin Sloan and he was 36 years old. As he looked at his reflection in the dresser mirror, he felt that recurring surprise that the tall, attractive man staring back was he. And beyond that was the wonder that the image bore no real relationship to the man himself. There was Martin Sloan, a tall six foot two with a lean suntan face, a straight nose and a square jaw, just a few threads of gray on either temple, medium set eyes, a good face all in all. The inventory continued down the glass. Brooks Brothers suit that fitted with casual perfection. Hathaway shirt and silk tie. Thin gold watch and all of it so appropriate, so full of taste. He continued to stare at himself and marveled at how a veneer could be spread over a man's frame to camouflage what was underneath. Because that's what he was looking at at this moment. Camouflage. Hell yes, he was Martin Sloan, an ad agency exec with a fabulous bachelor apartment on Park overlooking 63rd. And he drove a red Mercedes Benz and he was an agile-minded, very creative, oh so subtly pushy kind of rising young man. He could order in French and call Jackie Gleason by his first name and feel the very odd warmth of status when the Mater d' at Sardis East or the Colony or Danny's Hideaway called him by name and smiled a quiet, respectful deference when he entered their places. But the hell of it, the misery of it, was that Martin Sloan had an incipient ulcer 
that at this moment began a slow, raking crawl over his insides. He knew panic a dozen times a day. That convulsive, breath-stopping, ice-cube feeling of doubt and indecision, of being second-guessed, of being wrong, the effort to make his voice firm, his decision sound irrevocable, when deep inside his gut, worse as each day passed, he felt a vague slipping away of all the props he conjured up and took on the stage with him when he faced the president of the agency, the clients, or the other account execs. And that ulcer, that goddamned ulcer. We know by now that Sailing treasured the simplicity of the idyllic small American town. It runs through a lot of his work. Martin Sloan wants to return to one in walking distance. Gart Williams wants to go to one in a stop at Willoughby. Through the black and white 50s lens where it's all picket fences and apple pie, sailing would often put us in that time and place that meant so much to him. Walking distance on the page reads almost like a poetic ode to that time and place. And when it's read by Cliff Robertson, even more so. Martin walked down Oak Street, the street he'd grown up on. It stretched out ahead of him, flanked by big, full-leafed maple trees that cast sharp black shadows against the brilliant whiteness of the sunshine. Big, two-story Victorian houses set back behind long, green lawns were old friends to him. He rattled off names of their owners as he walked slowly down the sidewalk. Van Buren, Wilcox, Abernathy, he looked across the street. Over there, Dr. Bradbury. Mulrooney. Gray. He stopped and leaned against a tree. The street was exactly as he remembered it. He felt the bittersweet pang of nostalgia. He remembered the games he played with the kids on this street. The newspapers he delivered. The small boy accidents on roller skates and bicycles and the people the faces and names that fused in his mind now. His house was on the corner, and for some reason, he wanted to save this for last. Walking Distance is a very reflective episode. It's virtually all made up of Martin Sloan remembering various aspects of his childhood, whether it's the games he played or the soda he drank, but then there comes a point where his father has to talk some sense into him and snap him out of it. So let's enjoy that scene as performed by Gig Young playing Martin Sloan and Frank Overton playing Robert Sloan. And then let's hear it done by Cliff Robertson. Martin. Yes, Pop. You have to leave here. There's no room. There's no place. Do you understand that? I see that now, but I don't understand. Why not? I guess because we only get one chance. Maybe there's only one summer to every customer. That little boy, the one I know, the one who belongs here, this is his summer, just as it was yours once. Don't make him share it. All right. Martin. Is it so bad where you're from? I thought so, Pop. I've been living in a dead run and I was tired. And one day I knew I had to come back here. I had to come back and 
get on the merry-go-round and eat cotton candy and listen to a band concert. I had to stop and breathe and close my eyes and smell and listen. Martin? Yes, Dad. Robert put his hand on Martin's shoulder. You have to leave here. There's no room for you. And there's no place. Do you understand? Martin nodded and said softly, I see that now. But I don't understand. Why not? Robert smiled. I guess because we only get one chance. Maybe there's only one summer to a customer. Now his voice was deep and rich with compassion. The little boy, the one I know, the one who belongs here, this is his summer, Martin. Just as it was yours one time. He shook his head. Don't make him share it. Martin rose and looked off toward the darkened park. Is it so bad where you're from? Robert asked him. I thought so, Martin answered. I've been living at a dead run, Dad. I've been weak, and I made believe I was strong. I've been scared to death, but I've been playing a strong man. And suddenly it all caught up with me. And I felt so tired, Pop. I felt so damn tired, running for so long. Then one day I knew I had to come back. I had to come back and get on a merry-go-round and listen to a band concert and eat cotton candy. I had to stop and breathe and close my eyes and smell and listen. This is no criticism of Bernard Herrmann's Walking Distance score, but I am glad that Cliff Robertson's reading is free from music or effects. Robertson's voice has such a weight to it, and he can pull off that reflective tone tinged with regret so beautifully. He was a perfect choice for this story. He'd obviously have been much older than Gig Young was when he played Martin Sloan, but Robertson isn't just playing that character, he's given life to a cast of characters, young and old. Now he is famous in the Twilight Zone for the episodes 100 Yards Over the Rim and The Dummy, but I have no doubt that if he'd been the one to play Martin Sloan in Walking Distance. He'd have been great in that too. He paces his reading of the story beautifully using short moments of silence so that when he does speak that slightly cracked, aged voice carries even more weight. If you can find this story, I'd recommend taking some time, finding a quiet place and really letting yourself get lost in the story read by Cliff Robertson's voice. Martin Sloan, age 36, 
vice president in charge of media. Successful in most things, but not in the one effort that all men try at some time in their lives, trying to go home again. And also, like all men, perhaps there'll be an occasion, maybe a summer night sometime, when he'll look up from what he's doing and listen to the distant music of a calliope and hear the voices and the laughter of the people and the places of his past. And perhaps across his mind, there'll flit a little errant wish that a man might not have to become old, never outgrow the parks and the merry-go-rounds of his youth. And he'll smile then, too, because he'll know it is just an errant wish, some wisp of memory not too important, really, some laughing ghosts that cross a man's mind that are a part of the Twilight Zone. Our next reader in tape three is Roddy McDowell, and he is so remembered for The Twilight Zone, but it's funny because he only did the one episode. But it is one of those episodes where the ending especially is well and truly a part of pop culture, when he ends up in the zoo at the end of People Are Alike All Over. That episode was actually based upon a short story itself, but it couldn't be included in this collection because it wasn't written by Rod Serling. It was called Brothers Beyond the Void, and it was written by Paul Fairman. But that wasn't the end of Roddy McDowell's connection to Rod Serling's work. He went on to be in Planet of the Apes, and also in the first story of Rod Serling's Night Gallery. And then finally, this reading of the Season 2 episode, Odyssey of Flight 33. Harper Audio presents The Odyssey of Flight 33 by Rod Serling, performed by Roddy McDowell. What I love about The Odyssey of Flight 33, as I mentioned when I reviewed it, is that stories of air disasters have a terrible mystique all of their own, because we will never truly know what happened in those moments when disaster strikes. And because of that, we can fill that gap with conspiracy or fantasy or whatever direction our minds will take us in. And that's the genius of Rod Sailing's story. That's what he's doing. He's filling that gap. But in the written version, he gets to give us a glimpse of both sides, the strange occurrences that happened to Flight 33 in the air and also how it became a kind of aviation legend or ghost story on the ground. They don't talk about the flight much anymore, at least the pros don't. On occasion, a vastly theoretical article will appear in a Sunday supplement or mention will be made in a book on air disasters, but by and large, the world's day-to-day catastrophes are sufficient in scope and number to take even the loss of a giant airliner off the agenda. But with the pros, it's different. It isn't that other flight talk takes precedence. It's simply that Flight 33, and what did or didn't happen to it, carries a chill. I won't spend too long on this one, because apart from little touches like that, little bits of character and backstory as well, this is pretty much the same as the television version, which is fine, it's a great episode. But there is one moment in the Odyssey of Flight 33 that maybe in those pre-Jurassic Park days 
is more suited to the audio format. Craig grabbed Farber's arm. Skipper, verify something for me, would you? A- and in a hurry, now, look! Purcell and Hatch left their seat to look over the shoulders of the pilot and the co-pilot. It's not possible, Hatch announced. What in the name of God is going on, Purcell asked. Down below, under the left wing of the 707, was a wild, tangled jungle. But something else was clearly visible, even from 3,000 feet, through the window of the speeding airplane. It was a dinosaur nibbling some leaves off the top branch of a giant tree. That's what it was, a dinosaur. And when Flight 33 banked around to make another pass over the area, it looked up with huge, blinking eyes, perhaps thinking in its tiny mind that this was some big, strange bird. In the audio production of this story, you will notice some incidental music creeping in here and there. The first two tapes were just readings with no sound effects or music, but in this one, that little bit of music creeps in, and we'll come back to that later on. Overall, I don't think there's a Twilight Zone story that Roddy McDowell couldn't have read and made enjoyable. I do have a real fondness for The Odyssey of Flight 33, and he really does it justice. I especially like the closing act where, when they're low on fuel and out of their own time, Captain Farver makes a decision about what they're going to do. In the television version, Farver was quite a stoic and unshakable figure, played by John Anderson. But McDowell brings a bit more unease to his portrayal. His father has a few more levels to him, and it gives this a slightly different but equally as valid feel to it. But at the end of this version, what's different is that our Rod Sailing substitute is nowhere to be found. Roddy McDowell himself does the closing speech. As Rick Harris said earlier on, he recorded the first two tapes in New York and the second two in LA, so presumably the voice actor was in New York and couldn't do the closing narrations to this one. She was a trans-ocean jet airliner on her way from London to New York on an uneventful June afternoon in the year 1961. She was last heard from 600 miles south of Newfoundland. Then somehow she was swallowed up into the vast design of things to be searched for on land, on sea, and in the air by anguished human beings fearful of what they'd find. You and I, however, know where she is. You and I know what happened. So, if some moment, any moment, you hear the sound of jet engines flying atop the overcast, engines that sound searching and lost, engines that sound desperate, shoot up a flare, or do something. That would be Transocean 33 trying to get home from the Twilight Zone. This concludes side one. Please fast forward the tape to the end and turn it over.
let's think about this audio process for a moment. You have Roddy McDowell or one of the other readers in front of the microphone reading Rod Serling's words. And at the end of the whole process, you have a finished article, an audio tape. But what happens in between? So these come in at, say, about an hour, hour and a quarter, something like that. What kind of work goes into putting together that, that product? Well, what you get essentially is a, what we could call, say, a shooting ratio. Mm. Um, if you've got an hour-long story, uh, you can absolutely count on it taking a minimum, minimum of twice that to mm -hmm. record it. That recording uh, involves the performer doing something, making a mistake, stopping, going back, picking up the mistake, and then uh, moving on. Uh -huh. uh, and the director's role, director-producer's role, uh, is A, to work with the engineer, who is, uh, in this case, I'm, I'm simply sure it was Richard Romaniello, my recording engineer at the time at HarperCollins. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would be working, he would hear things that I didn't hear. I would hear things that he didn't hear. The actor would hear things that neither one of us heard. <laughs> and between the three of us, we are interpreting uh, A, uh, a text, and B, uh, listening to a performance. Yeah. Uh, the reader, let us say again, reading an hour-long story, takes a couple of hours to do it. Uh -huh. And that, of course, varies, A, by proficiency. Yeah. Uh, so there is just no question that some people read better than others. Uh -huh. uh, and there are people who are wonderful actors who can't read very well mm. because that's not how they work. They, mem they memorize, they internalize, and then having memorized and internalized, they sound like gold. They're wonderful. But when they read, when they observe, just looking at the words, because nobody walks in there having memorized the script. Okay, yeah. start with that. Um, they um, have a whole range of proficiency in reading ability and, and stumble over words, don't stumble over words. Yeah. Some people read fast, some people read slow. Uh, so you have differences of, of tempo, differences of profi proficiency. But having factored all of that in, you can walk in saying, okay, I've got an hour script to do today. I think I can get this done within X number of hours. And generally, it's about two to one. If it's an hour-long script, you can almost certainly get it done in about two hours, a little more, a little less, depending, again, okay. on temporal efficiency. So that's the first thing. And then it's edited. And while, while the actor is performing, uh, I, as the director, am talking nonstop, as you can understand, uh, <laughs> letting the actor know how well he or she is doing, saying lovely things and making sure that he or she feels comfortable about what they're doing and how they're doing it, yeah. and trying to elicit and to correct and say, no, that word is pronounced this way, or that really means this, or whatever it might be, and trying not to be too much a pain in the, of a pain in the butt on the one hand, yeah. or too passive on the other. But while all of that is happening, the engineer is sitting next to me, and he, in this case, it's a he, uh, is marking a script. He's got the same script that I've got, that the actor's got. So there's three scripts involved. Mm -hmm. And his script gets marked. And his script gets um, clearly it becomes, in effect, a roadmap for the next person involved in the process, who we'll come yeah. to in a second. But the engineer marks every mistake, marks every cough, marks every hiccup, uh, anything that would, in fact, uh, affect 
the quality of, uh, the, the, of the performance and of the recording. So at the end of, let us say, two hours, uh, the uh, recording engineer has a, and at this point, I should say, I mean, this is worth saying, in 1992, we were right at the edge of recording digitally. Right. But I would argue, best of my recollection, is that by around 92, we were still recording on reel-to-reel tape. Uh-huh. We were still recording on 15-inch reels or hubs of, 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 of audio tape, Ampex probably, Ampex 506 even more probably, uh, and uh, recording at uh, 15 inches per second. Uh-huh. So what it really meant is that every half an hour there would be a natural break yeah. because the reel would run out. And in all probability, we were recording two times. You would have a master and a safety. Okay. And so you, so so audio tape, uh, fifteen inch audio tape, a quarter inch uh, thickness, uh, north south thickness, so to speak, not not depth of thickness, but uh, quarter inch tape, and uh, or one inch tape, frankly, I don't remember half inch tape. It was a a, a, a a slightly balky process because you were dealing with uh, tapes that, that if you were recording as I was uh, to be uh, during the course of this uh, particular uh, series of uh, projects mm-hmm. uh, in Los Angeles, we'd have to ship tape if the studio happened not to have tape right. or the kind of tape we wanted them to have. Yeah. So there was rather, it was rather bulky uh, process, but long story short, it gets, it gets, the script gets marked. It's recorded on, on, digi- on excuse me, on uh, analog tape with a noise reduction system involved, probably Dolby S, if I recollect correctly, uh-huh. and or Dolby A, who knows, uh, <laughs> back <laughs> when. Then, so the next stage in the process is it gets handed over to an audio editor. Right. And the audio editor with the roadmap given him by the engineer, instead of having to sit there and just passively listening for two hours, mm. knows that on page two, the reader reads the first paragraph twice. Right. So he doesn't have to listen to the first take of that paragraph unless there's a note saying, okay, first paragraph is read twice, but the second reading is the better reading, which at 99% of the time always was. Mm-hmm. But except in this case, the second sentence was read better. And I would have given my editor, the, excuse me, the engineer, uh, that note if that were the case. But the predominant case was that if there was a retake, the retake was better. And there was a retake for a reason, because... Yeah. There was a mistake in the initial take, and so you do the do it over again. Presumably, you've done it over better, or you've done it, or you do it three or four or five times. And generally, again speaking, that fifth take is the one you're going to use. Right. So the engineer, instead of excuse me, the editor, instead of having to listen to all four takes, goes to the fifth take, cuts the two takes together that he wants, and marches on. We are, of course, talking a rap other old period of time in which <laughs> tape was spliced yeah. with a razor blade and those two pieces were put together with splicing tape. Oh my God. Uh, so that the, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, uh, this is mildly prehistoric, but it is nevertheless uh, the way in which it was done. Yeah. And 
that, that, that essentially is the process uh, whereby a two-hour recording becomes a one-hour final product mm. uh, through the hands of the recorder, the, the reader recorder, uh, the director who's you know, contributing whatever he or she contributes, the engineer, and then finally the editor. And that would be basically be the story. We then had to pick, you would then pick music, mm. which at this distance I am baffled what we used for music. I have no idea what we used for music. We had, of course, various libraries, but um, it is, I think, the case that the Twilight Zone music, the real music from the Twilight Zone TV series, yeah. was well-owned. Mm -hmm. I mean, extremely well-owned and was not available for use uh, for the fun of it. Now, I, 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 I frankly do not know what music we used. I would wager that what we did was come up with something that had a feeling. Uh, well, I can answer that for you if you want. Well, please. I would love to know the answer to that. What did we use? Well, you, you did actually use the, the Twilight Zone theme, uh, but it was obviously... Really? A, oh, yeah. great. It, it was a new recording of it. Um, I, I guess it was done on some sort of electric keyboard or something. Sure, sure. I'm I'm sure that. Yeah. Yeah, and then you had a, a guy kind of doing the opening narration, the rod sailing thing, and I don't know if yes. if you remember him. I do remember him, as a matter of fact. Yes. Yeah, because he had a sort of sailing inflection to his voice, and but he wasn't. Yes doing a, a rod sailing impersonation as such uh-huh okay i i in fact can vaguely i do in fact know where i i know who the actor is i remember him on the radio from new york mm -hmm. he, was a, he was a sort of a um, part of a radio team and he yeah. was one of like three or four people who were always on this radio program and he was he always did voices he did a lot of voices i see and at some point i sought him out and asked him if he would do this little you know rod serling uh riff if you will uh -huh. and he did it yes so, so if we were able to, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that we were able to find a way to get uh the uh authentic uh tunes uh, so to speak uh, uh from twilight zone so that's great oh good 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 that is excellent to hear uh that certainly does contribute to uh the, the authenticity of what we need to one of the pleasures of those first three audio tapes is it's established Twilight Zone actors doing stories that they weren't originally involved in. But when we come to tape number four, The Midnight Sun, Rick Harris was able to bring back the lead actress from that episode, Lois Nettleton, to read the story. In the original episode, Lois played the character of Norma. Harper Audio presents The Midnight Sun by Rod Serling, performed by Lois Nettleton. When she first appeared in The Twilight Zone, Lois Nettleton would have been in her early 30s. The story focuses on two women. The first is Norma and an older lady, Mrs. Bronson, played by Betty Gard. The two women live in the same apartment building in New York City. But as the Earth moves closer and closer to the sun, the planet has been plunged into crisis and things that were previously taken for granted like water start to become valuable commodities. As do certain skills that will help people 
to stay cool like repairing air conditioning and refrigerators. In the original screenplay for The Midnight Sun, there were two scenes that were included that never ended up in the end product. The first one features a repairman and the second one a cop. So without the restrictions of time, it was something that Rod Serling was able to put back into the short story. A man carrying a toolkit came out of Mrs. Bronson's apartment. She's running again, Mrs. Bronson, he said. I wouldn't sign no guarantee as to how long she'll run, but she shouldn't give you any trouble for a while. He looked briefly at Norma and fingered his toolkit nervously. Was he going to pay for this in cash? He asked. I have a charge account, Mrs. Bronson said. The repairman was ill at ease. Boss said I should start collecting in cash. He looked a little apologetically toward Norma. We've been working round the clock. Refrigerators breaking down every minute and a half. Everybody and his brother trying to make ice. Then with the current being cut off every couple hours, it's tough on the machines. With obvious effort, he looked back at Mrs. Bronson. About that bill, Mrs. Bronson. How much is it? The repairman looked down at his toolkit. His voice was low. I gotta charge you a hundred dollars. He just shook his head disconsolately. The quiet of Mrs. Bronson's voice did not cover her dismay. A hundred dollars? For fifteen minutes' work? The repairman nodded miserably. For fifteen minutes' work? Most outfits are charged and double that, and even triple. It's been that way for a month, ever since... He looked out the hall window toward the street. Ever since the thing happened. This situation, the Earth moving closer and closer to the sun, is not something that our main characters can figure a way out of. The inevitable will happen. As Rod Serling said in his opening narration, they've been handed a death sentence. It's just a question of what do you do in the meantime? Do you stay and wait for it? Or do you try to delay it as long as you can by traveling across the country? So let's hear Norma make that decision. Once in 1961 when Lois Nettleton was in her 30s and then again 30 years later in 1992 when she was in her 60s. Aren't you going to leave? No. No, I'm not going to leave. You know, Mrs. Bronson, I keep getting this crazy thought. This crazy thought that I'm going to wake up and none of this will have happened. I'll wake up in a cool bed. It'll be night outside. And there'll be a wind. Branches rustling. Shadows on the sidewalk. A moon. Traffic noises. Automobiles. Garbage cans. Aren't you gonna leave? She blurted. Norma shook her head. No, I'm not gonna leave. She forced a smile, then turned and went back into her apartment, leaving the door open. Mrs. Bronson followed her. Norma walked over to the window, 
The sun bathed her with its heat and with its strange, almost malevolent light. It had changed the entire city. The streets, the buildings, the stores had taken on a sickly oyster color. The air was heavy, soggy. Norma felt perspiration rolling down her back and her legs. I keep getting this crazy thought, she said. This crazy thought that I'll wake up and none of this will have happened. I'll wake up in a cool bed and it'll be night outside and there'll be a wind and there'll be branches rustling, shadows on the sidewalk, a moon. She turned her face to stare directly out of the window. It was like standing in front of an open oven. The waves of heat struck at her, pushed into her flesh, poured through her pores. And traffic noises, she continued in a softer voice. Automobiles, garbage cans, milk bottles, voices. She raised her hand and pulled at the cord of the Venetian blind. The slats closed and the room became shadowed, but the heat remained. What's nice about this reading is that when she did it, Lois Nettleton was now actually a little older than her co-star Betty Gard was in the television version. If the years have altered Lois's voice, it's only very slightly, but she does a wonderful job of playing both roles this time round, still giving her younger self that vitality that is gradually fading away in the heat but she's still hanging on to hope as much as she can. And Mrs. Bronson is obviously older in years and struggling more because of those years. I'm sorry. My dear child, I'm so sorry. It would be so much better if... If what? If I were to just die. She looked up into Norma's face. So much better for you. Norma knelt down, cupping the old face in her hands. Don't ever say that again to me, Mrs. Bronson. For God's sake, don't ever say that again. We need each other now. We need each other desperately. The great triumph of the television version of this story is that the weight of the situation, the hopelessness is just palpable and the oppressiveness of the heat is really carried over to the audience so you can feel the weight of it bearing down on you too. These people are going to die, it's inevitable. Or is it? Well, the twist puts a different spin on how they're going to die. So that's the whole point. But what's interesting is that in the first two tapes, The Mighty Casey and Walking Distance, it's purely just Fritz Weaver and Cliff Robertson reading the story. In the third tape, The Odyssey of Flight 33, they introduce a couple of little effects and music cues. But in this one, there's quite a bit of background music and sound effects. So the tapes seem to be evolving as they go on. But at its core, it's Lois Nettleton reading Rod Serling's words, and she does a wonderful job of bringing that atmosphere back again. Her characterizations never falter, and she has 
a range of characters to play here, male and female, and she gives a very confident and distinct performance for each one. But, of course, she was a professional, a very experienced actor by this point who'd been in the business for a long time. When the story ends, as it was with the Odyssey of Flight 33, our surrogate Rod Sailing is again nowhere to be found. So Lois takes us out. Outside, the snow fell heavier and heavier, and the glass on the thermometer cracked. The mercury had gone down to the very bottom, and there was no place left for it to go. And very slowly, night and cold reached out with frozen fingers to feel the pulse of the city, and then to stop it. So that was our four initial tapes, but as Rick said, all recorded in 1992, but that still leaves two to go. The latter two, The Lonely with Gene Marsh and Monsters Are Due on Maple Street with uh, Theodore Bikel, those were done a year later. Those were done in uh, May of 93. Uh-huh. And I frankly, have absolutely no idea why there is a year's gap <laughs> between the first four and the latter two. Um, I, 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 uh, it could have been something to do with packaging, whereby we put out four, yeah. and for some reason decided it would be a more attractive package to put out six, and we had to record another two. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could make up any number of reasons. <laughs> why, but whatever the reasons were, uh, we uh, decided to do an additional two, the the last of uh, last six, yeah. and the body uh, of of those works essentially consists of six stories. So, in tape number five, we're going back to Maple Street in another of the Twilight Zone's most celebrated episodes. Harper Audio presents. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, by Rod Serling, performed by Theodore Bickell. Although it is one of the Twilight Zone's most celebrated episodes, doing it in this way on audio brings with it a few challenges. There are several characters, male and female, all interacting with each other, overlapping with the dialogue building up pace as the story goes on, so potentially it's a difficult read, for the Austrian actor Theodore Bekel. The actors that we've had so far in this audio series all played part in pretty high-profile Twilight Zone episodes, but Theodore Bekel's wasn't quite up there with the likes of Walking Distance. He played quite an unusual character called Oliver Krangle in the Season 3 episode, Four O'Clock. School superintendent, please. Hello, is this the school superintendent? Yeah, well, this is a concerned citizen, and this call has to do with a teacher in your employ. His name is... Farwell. William J. Farwell teaches at your North End High School. That's correct. Well, the man is morally objectionable. 
He's a drinker, a carouser, and I have it on good authority that his relationships with the students are questionable at best. He should be discharged immediately. Well, never mind who this is. I happen to be giving you facts, and these facts are what is at issue. The Monsters are due on Maple Street is maybe the first example of a setup that Rod Serling would return to several times. Put a group of people together, throw in some reason for them to look at each other with suspicion and see what happens. It is usually the case, as it is in Maple Street, that if people just trusted each other and worked together, then they should be able to overcome whatever the obstacle is. But unfortunately, that's not what people usually do, which is precisely Rod Serling's point. It was Saturday afternoon on Maple Street, and the late sun retained some of the warmth of a persistent Indian summer. People along the street marveled at winter's delay and took advantage of it. Lawns were being mowed, cars polished, kids played hopscotch on the sidewalks. Old Mr. Van Horn, the patriarch of the street who lived alone, had moved his power saw out on his lawn and was fashioning new pickets for his fence. A good humor man bicycled in around the corner and was inundated by children and by shouts of, wait a minute, from small boys hurrying to con nickels from their parents. It was 4.40 p.m. A football game blared from a portable radio on the front porch, blending with the other sounds of a Saturday afternoon in October. Maple Street, 4.40 p.m. Maple Street in its last calm and reflective moments before the monsters came. Rod Serling is drawing us in with another of his idyllic American neighborhoods, but this time around he shows us this friendly exterior is only a veneer, and when a couple of strange things happen around the neighborhood, like lights going on and off by themselves, that veneer slips away, revealing distrust and prejudice amongst the neighbors. They started to walk away from the group when they heard the boy's voice. Tommy Bishop, aged 12, had stepped out in front of the others and was calling out to them. Mr. Bran, Mr. Martin, you better not leave. Steve took a step back toward him. Why not, he asked. They don't want you to, Tommy said. Steve and Don exchanged a look. Who doesn't want us to? Steve asked him. Tommy looked up toward the sky. Them, he said. Them, Steve asked. Who are them, Charlie squealed. Whoever was in that thing that came by overhead, Tommy said intently. Steve walked slowly back toward the boy and stopped close to him. What, Tommy, he asked. Whoever was in that thing that came over, Tommy repeated. I don't think they want us to leave here. McCarthyism, racism, it's all here in Sailing's cautionary tale. And it's the kind of story that every generation should have its own version of. Theodore Bakel is a fine actor and he has a great speaking voice with a wonderful accent. But if I have a criticism, it's that at times his voice characterizations aren't always very distinct from one another because Maple Street is quite dense with characters and some of them only have small parts so when 
A lot of people are talking and butting in and arguing. If you don't know the story of Maple Street, I would imagine it could get a little confusing without very distinct and clearly different vocal characterizations. But like I said earlier, it is probably the most difficult to read of all of these stories for that reason. Lots of characters, and as I do know the Maple Street story very well, I could follow it, and I imagine most Twilight Zone fans can. And to give him his due, at the end when he's given the alien characters to voice, his voice work is right on point. Now the 2000s Twilight Zone had its own version of the monsters are due on Maple Street that wasn't entirely successful, and I think this one does the job a lot better. But then again, these are Serling's words, completely unfiltered and read exactly as he'd written them. Up on top of the hill, two men, screened by the darkness, stood near the entrance to a spaceship and looked down on Maple Street. The first figure said, understand the procedure now just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers throw them into darkness for a few hours and then watch the pattern unfold and this pattern is always the same the second figure asked the answer came with few variations they pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. All we need to do is sit back and watch. With one more tape to go, the Harper audio series still had one more surprise for the audience. Now, it was great to have Lois Nettleton back for the Midnight Sun, but for the sixth and final tape, Rick Harris did bring back an actress that had been in the story that she was going to read, but there was a further intriguing little detail that made this one a little bit different. We picked the actors. Our first thought was obviously whoever the star of that episode, if, if we picked stories one through six, uh, the, uh, the first choice obviously would be the actor or actress who was the lead of that particular uh, uh, video performance from the uh, from the TV series, of course. Uh -huh. But in most cases, either they were not available, or were sadly deceased, or there was another you know, practical reason why that person was not available. So, but we were able to. What we decided to do, what I decided to do, was to come up with actors who had been leads and had been on the Twilight Zone but not necessarily for that particular story. Yeah. So these were Twilight Zone identified performers uh, reading Twilight Zone material. Gene Marsh, actually, the, my recollection is that the story that she read, The Lonely, she was, in fact, in that episode, but she, in fact, as I recollect it, was sort of the robot or the, the, the otherworldly figure. That's right, yeah. Just to state the obvious, when you do an audio book, uh, although there is dialogue and the actor or actress uh, will read in a, in, in a variety of voices, uh -huh. uh, essentially it's a one-person, it is, in fact, a one-person act. Mm. Uh, he or she reads 
every word and whether he or she is playing uh, the narrator, protagonist, or playing a character in the story, mm. it's essentially a one-person show. Yeah. Uh, and each of these actors, uh, although, as I say, are not directly, were not in the ap- absolutely original, the original version, uh-huh. these were all people who had been on The Twilight Zone and had done very nice work, and who, in fact, I knew to be good actors. Yeah. So that was, I think, the pri- of course, a primary consideration. I, I think what it does, though, is it, it kind of gives us this nice alternate dimension where, you know, Cliff Robertson was in Walking Distance mm-hmm. and Fritz Weaver was in The Mighty Casey and Roddy McDowell in The Odyssey of Flight 33. So I think, you know, although... Okay, it's good that the other some of the others were in those episodes. It's also really interesting to put Twilight Zone actors in different Twilight Zones as well. So I think it works on that level yes. too. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with a good reader, I mean, a talented performer, he or she takes on what there is in the language and embodies it with his or her particular talent and style and temperament mm-hmm. and tempo. And it's acting. Uh, it's a. It's purely and simply that. Um, it's not just saying the words. It's uh, owning them, embodying them, and uh, performing them. What I think each of these these people did. Audio presents The Lonely by Rod Serling, performed by Jean Marsh. James Corey is sentenced to solitary confinement on an asteroid. The only contact he has with other people is short supply drop-offs every few months where he's brought food and other essential items, but even those visits are very quick. The crime that he's committed is murder, but in order to make him more sympathetic, it's a murder that occurred under circumstances that the audience would need to be able to have some level of sympathy for. Now the full story isn't really revealed in the TV version, but it's one of those details that, freed from time constraints, Rod Serling could fill in for the literary audience. He'd been 35 when it happened, on Earth. At odd times, it would come back to him, graphic and clear, in actual chronology and vivid, almost unbearable recall. He could see the dead body of his wife, struck down by a wildly speeding driver. This incredibly beautiful woman, in one violent, shrieking moment, was turned into a thing of horror to lie an unrecognizable pulp on a city street while the drunken maniac responsible careened along to wind up against a lamppost. Corey saw it happen from his apartment window and dashed out into the street. He took one look at his wife and then ran towards the smashed car. The driver was getting out, his face ashen with a sudden sobriety laced with horror. It had taken only a moment for Kari to do his job. Goaded by a fury, an anger, a hatred, a torment which knew no bounds, he strangled the man with his bare hand, while onlookers screamed and two large men had been unable to tear him away. When the captain of the supply ship, Allenby, takes pity on Kari, 
he brings him a female android named Alicia to keep him company on the asteroid. And the actress who played Alicia was, of course, Jean Marsh, who reads this story. And this is one of the great pleasures of this particular reading. Jean Marsh only had a handful of lines in the television version, so to hear her give life to the whole story is just wonderful. But also, when you're waiting for her to speak Alicia's first line again in the audio version, you're on the edge of your seat because you want to hear what it's like now. My name's Alicia. What's your name? Get out of here! Get out of here! I don't need a machine! Go on, get out of here! My name's Alicia. What's your name? Get out of here, Corey said in a low voice as he advanced toward her. Get out of here. His voice was louder as he glared at her, the horror he felt crawling across his skin. Get out of here. I don't want any machine in here. Go on, get out of here. The robot looked back at him. Then she opened her mouth and spoke. My name is Alicia, the mouth said. The voice was that of a woman, but there was a coldness to it. My name is Alicia. What's yours? In a lot of ways, time is a major element of the lonely. The time that Corey spends alone on the asteroid, the time he gets to spend with Alicia building up their relationship, and I've got no complaints about the television version, I absolutely adore it. But Sailing's literary version and this subsequent audio version really benefit from being able to stretch out those long periods of loneliness. It's over half an hour into the story before Alicia even shows up. And then the story gets a chance to build up that relationship between Alicia and Corey showing us why it became so hard for Corey to even consider leaving her behind on the asteroid. And when he is faced with that prospect, leaving Alicia alone on the asteroid, that sequence too is agonizing because it's given that bit more time. You'll have to leave the robot behind. Corey stared at him aghast. His voice shook. She's not just a robot, Allenby. You don't understand. You simply don't understand. You leave her behind? That, that's murder. All of these six audios are great in their own way, but I have to say I think this one is my favourite. There are so many elements that make it great. The return of Jean Marsh not only reprising her role as Alicia, but showing her ability by breathing life into the whole thing. But also the story itself works so well on the written page and subsequently in this audio version. It's exactly what you'd want from an audio version of The Lonely. It's the same, but also different enough to justify its existence and a perfect way 
to end this six tape series on a high. Down below, on a microscopic piece of sand that floated through space, was a fragment of a man's life. Left to rust were the place he'd lived in and the machines he'd used. Without use, they would disintegrate from the wind and the sand and the years that acted upon them. All of Mr. Corey's machines, including the one made in his image and kept alive by love. It lay mutilated in the sand. It had become obsolete. Before we move on from the lonely, there is actually a little extra on this one, which I can only assume happened when the tape was still running and Gene Marsh was sharing some memories of the Twilight Zone. I do love reading interviews with people who were in the Twilight Zone, but hearing it directly from one of its stars really brings it to life. And I won't include the whole piece, but I urge you to track it down and listen if you can because it is just delightful. Rod Serling was on the set every single day. He had absolutely no protection. He wore shorts, no shirt. Um, and he didn't even have a pack of ice down his back. I was very well looked after. I always had a little pack of ice hanging down my back. I had um, an air-conditioned car and an air-conditioned trailer, all that kind of thing. But he strode around with enormous energy, uh, helping tremendously with the production. But as I say, amazing in the heat, with no protection at all. Six tapes, six stories, and six very talented actors. I imagine that on a film or TV set, the crew and actors spend quite a bit of time together, which is why people in the business are usually full of stories about their professional lives. But the recording of an audiobook is a different process, and because the volume of projects is potentially a lot bigger, I was curious as to whether Rick recalled much about working with his Twilight Zone stars. I know we're going over 20 years ago now, but do you recall actually working with these people, Fritz Weaver, Cliff Robertson, Roddy McDowell, and, and what they were like? Uh, frankly, not very much. Uh, I can tell you that uh, I remember Roddy McDowell. I remember working with him in Los Angeles, and he was very charming, uh, very easy, uh, told a lot of jokes mm -hmm. uh, that, that are not entirely uh, to be repeated over the air, so to speak. Uh, they were sl slightly off-color jokes, but he was very funny to be with and easy to be around. Fritz Weaver, I had I worked with a couple of times during that period, mm -hmm. and had a, 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 a as you might imagine, listening to him, had a considerable amount of dignity and style. Uh, yeah. He was he was quite quite the fellow. Uh, never did not have the, uh, the the sized career that one would have thought would be appropriate for somebody of his talent but he was excellent and sounded great cliff robertson was wonderful i mean cliff robertson was really good at this uh mm. he had this uh, he had a commercial background and read a lot of copy uh, for, for, for commercials of one sort or another and sounded ex and was extremely comfortable uh mm. reading uh doing the material he had the Kel, I, I frankly don't remember very much about him. Lois Nettleton, not very much either. I mean, at the time, I, I'm sure I didn't even know very much about her other than that she had done lots of good stuff and was, uh -huh. uh, was a very talented actress. 
Gene Marsh, easy to work with, smart, funny, uh, but but again, not a, you know this is you know 15 years ago, so I'd be damned if I can remember exactly more 20 actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it, the experiences were generally speaking good. I mean, I have to say that the general run of audiobook experiences, although God knows there are exceptions, but the general <laughs> uh, run of experience with audiobook readers is cooperative uh, yeah. because uh, doing these uh, was uh, not enormously financially rewarding to the performers. Uh, they were not making a fortune. Uh, they were not retiring on these monies. And they were uh, hardworking and capable, but they weren't palling around on a, on a movie set uh, with nothing to do. This was a, it's a work situation. You show up, you're ready to go. I'm ready to go. The engineer's ready to go. Tape is running. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no sense that, that 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 the money was being spent or anything like that. But in the sense that you know the, the, the cash registers are clicking or uh, running ahead. But there is the sense that this is a work environment. This is a work situation. Yeah. Uh, you, you're a nice person. I'm a nice person. We're having a good time. We're doing good work. But there's no messing about going on. Uh, it's a business-like uh, working situation and. Uh, as I say, the year's gap between the first four and the last two is a source of mild bafflement to me, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's in fact what happened. Why, why, they were, why, why we did four and then waited a year to do the last two beats me. Perhaps it had to do with, again, packaging and uh, the yeah. right size uh, format. I just have no idea. But, but in fact, I think all six are, are very good examples of what the audiobook can be and is. I said earlier that the books, stories, more stories and new stories from the Twilight Zone were the source for these audio versions. So after these six audio plays, there were still literary versions of The Shelter, Where Is Everybody, and another 11 stories that were yet to be adapted. So what happened? When they came out, did you have any idea? Mm -hmm. I mean, did you did you watch the numbers on these things to see how successful they were, and and was there any talk of doing more? Uh, no, and no. Um, <laughs> my my job essentially, my job essentially was to do them. Yeah. And my general understanding was that if I really liked it, it probably wouldn't sell, and if I didn't like it, it probably would sell. <laughs> uh, my understanding of the marketplace was a bit on the. The rudimentary side as to why the numbers stopped at six i can't tell you um uh -huh. my best guess is that the book on which they were ba or the, the the source book mm. from which the stories came uh did not sell so very many that the prospect of doing them rather than the next uh, whatever novel uh, Jeffrey Archer might book uh, book coming out might be uh, yeah. was uh, you know that was that's an that was an editorial choice it was mm -hmm. invariably an editorial choice I had almost no role in the uh, selection of material uh, yeah. my job was essentially to do them to find the right actor or, or actress for the part. There are hopefully some of you out there who have sitting on a shelf at home these six tapes and it would be nice to think that they still get some play every now and again but for those of you who haven't heard them and want to 
I hope that after hearing these clips and Rick's memories about producing them, your curiosity has been piqued and you want to hear them for yourself. So how do you go about getting hold of them? For me, this journey began with just a look through eBay because I'll often just put in the words Twilight Zone into the search box and see what comes up. So it might be another book to add to the collection or some piece of interesting memorabilia. But this time I saw for sale sealed editions of the Mighty Casey and Walking Distance, the first two of these tapes. Now, at first glance, I thought they might be some sort of old release of the episodes themselves on VHS, maybe single episode editions. But then there on the cover, it said, performed by Fritz Weaver and Cliff Robertson. So it didn't quite make sense to me at that point. I, of course, then looked deeper into it and I saw what they actually were and I bought them immediately. Now, at the time of recording this, you can still get those first two tapes at very reasonable prices on eBay or Amazon in the region of £10 sealed or cheaper used. Getting hold of the next four tapes varied in its level of difficulty and I have to thank Brandy Jacola and Tony Alborella for assisting me in gathering these stories. Tapes 3 and 4, The Odyssey of Flight 33 and The Midnight Sun were also fairly reasonably priced, perhaps a few pounds more, but you might just have to be creative with how you search for them because sometimes on Amazon they are listed as the tape versions of the Twilight Zone radio stories of the same name. So you might just have to be a bit careful there. But the last two, The Monsters of Dew on Maple Street and The Lonely, they might cause you some problems. If you manage to find them, you will probably end up having to pay out for them. So if you see them at a reasonable price, I would be grabbing them straight away. Well, would, would it surprise you to know that The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street tape is listed on Amazon now for $300? Yes. <laughs> it's become quite the collector's item. It certainly item. would. Well, that's good to hear. Well, Theodore Pickell is a wonderful actor. I mean, a beautiful voice and a beautiful reader. Uh, and I'm not at all surprised that that's the case in the sense that the quality involved, yes. Uh -huh. But, you know, what happens on, uh, you know, Amazon slash eBay slash uh, the uh, cult followings is, uh, you know, the, these, are, these are things that uh, where, where people get enthusiastic about the quality of things that you know at the time you do them you have no idea is is wonderful yeah. you know and how many how many audiobook producer directors have the experience of doing something they think is oh my god what did i just do and why didn't <laughs> that go better yeah and then 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 two years later somebody comes up to you and says that changed my life mm -hmm. uh, and I, that that's great that's just that's one of the joys of of of, of, of any you know, uh, craftsmanship and artistry. Uh, it's, it's, it's always a surprise when other people see what you do. Sometimes a happy surprise. Thinking back on these six releases, had Rick Harris just used generic voice actors at the time, I would probably have thought them very nice, but would I have spent the time to put this together? I'm sure I would have mentioned them somehow, but maybe not in this way. But Rick did use these actors, so 
for me, they are deserving of being that bit more prominent in the overall story of the Twilight Zone and its travels through different media. The sad part is, though, that these tapes were released about 24 years ago, and that's it. No new versions, no CD version, no MP3 version, just these tapes. Even amongst Twilight Zone fans, there just doesn't seem to be much knowledge of them. All I could find when I looked for them online was a forum post from 2006 on a message board. These tapes are, are 23 years old now, and unfortunately, as far as I know, they haven't been mm. converted to CD or MP3 mm. or anything like that. Now, you know, old movies are always being remastered and reissued. Of course. Do you feel that audiobooks are kind of overlooked when it comes to preserving them for, you know, future generations? Yes, I do. I mean, particularly when it comes to material that is, uh, as, as was the case here, not abridged. Um, mm. One of the aspects of the audiobook history is that for about 10, 12 years, maybe longer, uh, the overwhelming majority of audiobooks were abridgments. Yeah. If you had a Nelson DeMille novel or a Jeffrey Archer novel, uh, that unabridged would run 15, 20 hours, it was invariably the case that that book was then six hours long uh, mm -hmm. uh, when the audio book abridgment uh, came out, when the audio came out. So I think for those, that's, I think, not particularly uh, a wonderful thing, except, again, with the, with the massive, massive exception of a wonderful performance, uh, because mm -hmm. there is always something that a wonderful performance brings to uh, a text that whether it's a bridge or not a bridge makes no difference whatsoever. I mean, they're just a wonderful, I mean, there's a, from the Cadman archives, there's a wonderful performance by Henry Fonda of the grapes of materials from of parts of the grapes of wrath uh -huh. uh, by John Steinbeck, the film, the film in which of course he starred as Tom Jode, but that recording is only about 45 minutes long. Yeah. On the one hand, you can say, well, that's just 45 minutes out of, what, a 15-hour, let's say, a 15-hour novel. And that is certainly true. It is not the same thing as the novel, mm -hmm. on the one hand. On the other, it's bloody Henry Fonda performing <laughs> Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. And so that kind of balancing act, deciding what's enormously valuable and what is less, uh does make for a, for a difficult balancing act. But uh, yeah, I think there are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful audiobook performances that deserve to be uh, not left back with the age of the cassette or, or the, the, let's just say the VCR, same problem, where the older technology definitely should be uh, refurbished and new material and, and, and the wonderful performances should be saved and, uh, and kept in whatever medium uh, for as long as they can be kept. Yes, I agree with that. I don't mind saying that when I found these tapes, I felt like I discovered lost treasure. But why? Why was I so excited by them? If we take ourselves back to the early 90s again, the only other Twilight Zone thing that went on was the 1994 special Rod Sailing's Lost Classics, which was a kind of television event where they filmed two of Rod Sailing's stories that he'd never completed. But the finished product never really set the world alight. 
the long-running Twilight Zone radio series was still the best part of a decade away and while that series too would occasionally use original Twilight Zone cast members in different roles, these Harper Audio versions did it first. Had Rick Harris just used any voice actor to read these stories, I'd probably think them quite nice, but I don't think I'd be here talking to you about them with such enthusiasm. And while it's clear that this was something that Harper Audio had the rights for and made a commercial decision to do, and as Rick said, it was a job that he did and then moved on to the next thing, he still cared enough to bring original Twilight Zone actors back 30 years later after they'd first been in the Twilight Zone. You know, many projects are greenlit by the people who sign the checks, but then it goes into the hands of people like Rick Harris, the creative people, and he could have just used any actors for this, but he didn't. He allowed Fritz Weaver to show a side to his talents that he never got to show on the original Twilight Zone. The Mighty Casey doesn't top anyone's best of lists, but when Fritz Weaver does it, he brings a charm that elevates it above even the original version. Cliff Robertson brings gravity to walking distance, a story that is all about gravity, the weight of life that threatens to push us down every day. The original is great, I have no complaints, but I genuinely believe that Cliff Robertson could have been just as great in the part of Martin Sloan too. Then there's Roddy McDowell in the Odyssey of Flight 33, giving him another chance to speak Rod Serling's words as he did in the Twilight Zone Night Gallery and Planet of the Apes. Theodore Bakel, an actor of tremendous presence, takes on one of Rod Serling's most beloved and important stories, and he does it justice. These four stories shuffle established Twilight Zone stars into an alternate Twilight Zone, creating something new, but also incredibly nostalgic. But as well as these alternate takes on established stories, there's the joy of hearing Lois Nettleton returning to the same story that she took part in 30 years earlier and making us feel that heat all over again in the midnight sun. And then there's Jean Marsh. We all loved her as Alicia in The Lonely, but this time she not only gets to reprise that role, but she gives voice to the whole thing with a voice that she barely got to use the first time round. These audio tapes were made 30 years after The Twilight Zone ended. For all intents and purposes, at that time they were The Twilight Zone. Rod Serling's words, straight from his typewriter, read by actors who had helped make the show so special in the first place. I like to think that they didn't just come back because it was a job, but also to honour Rod Serling almost 20 years after he passed away. I think these tapes are pretty special and if I hope for anything, it's that perhaps this episode will make people hunt down those tapes, preserve them, cherish them and enjoy them for the lost treasures that they are because the sad truth is, a remastered version is unlikely to ever happen 
And I do understand, you know, to dig out the original master tapes, even if they still exist, then remaster them and release them on a digital format would cost money and would need to be commercially viable in and of itself. I imagine most people listening to this would support a project like that, but is that enough in the commercial world? I don't know. That's a question for someone who knows the business, but maybe if there's a future Blu-ray release, that process could be brought into those releases. So they could be a special feature on those discs and wouldn't have to carry the cost themselves. Just an idea, I don't know how feasible that is. Because these are special, and maybe the electronic version of the music hasn't aged that well, and the sailing-esque narrator isn't going to be to everyone's taste, but what matters is the readings themselves. They do hold up, but more than that, they're a vital part of the history of the Twilight Zone. When Rick Harris brought six actors together from a show they'd been in 30 years before to honour the written words of Rod Serling, it would be tragic if these were lost. I've called this special episode of the Twilight Zone podcast, The Forgotten Twilight Zone, which seems quite cruel in a way, but it's no criticism of the product itself. It's more a reflection of this Twilight Zone being born onto an extremely perishable format that was reaching the end of its run. Some might say that these tapes being so rare is something that makes them special, but for me what makes them special is the readings themselves. They deserve to be preserved and they deserve to still be enjoyed because this is a Twilight Zone that deserves to be anything but forgotten. I was really happy to discover them. You know, it was like finding lost treasure. Roddy McDowell mm. doing the Odyssey of Flight 33, Cliff Robertson doing Walking Distance. You know, and I, I know my Twilight Zone because I, I do this show and, you know, I collect all kinds of stuff. And then I just happened upon these and it was, like I said, it was like finding lost treasure. So That's wonderful. I'm so pleased to hear that. You know, that's all my questions, Rick, but I just want to say thank you for, you know, helping me out and, and shedding a bit more light on these these little lost gems for me. Thank you. My pleasure. It was, a, it was a pleasure doing them way back when, and it's a pleasure talking about them now, and I hope they continue to give pleasure not just to you, but to anybody who happens upon them. hope you've enjoyed this presentation from Harper Audio. To order other titles or for a complete catalog, please call us at 1-800-331-3761. That's 1-800-331-3761. Thank you.